Mother's Day. No amen there? Come on, mothers, you know you need a break, right? No, it's not about that. It's about our children learning and growing in their faith. So we anticipate God doing that. Imagine this. Imagine out of the blue you get a phone call. You get a phone call from your mom, and she is giving you a heads up. You like the Mother's Day reference right from the start, right? Mothers, right? Imagine your mom calls you. She gives you a heads up, and she says, uh, your dad and I are stopping by. We're on our way over. How would you prepare for her coming? Or maybe an old friend from high school calls. They're passing through town. And they say, hey, I want to stop by and catch up a little bit. How would you prepare for their coming? What would you do to, to get ready? Imagine this happens. Your boss calls. It's an emergency. Something needs to be done. Something needs to be put into your hands. So your boss wants to come by, run some things by you, and get you on your productive way. What would you do if your boss was going to come? How would you prepare your house? Or imagine this. What if a celebrity, somebody like Ty Pennington, calls from Extreme Home Makeover, and he says, listen, we're coming by your place to see if it couldn't be the next house featured on Extreme Home Makeover. Now listen, you're probably going to do a little bit different kind of work, you know. You might throw some food on the floor, sledgehammer the ceiling, stuff like that, rip some lights. Look, at this place is really bad to show that transformation. But based on him showing up, you'd prepare your house in a very uh, specific way. How about this one? Whether you like the current president or not, just take that off the table, okay? What if the president of the United States of America says he's coming to your house to do a home interview with middle-class Americans? And the president was coming to your house, going to sit in your living room. What would you do to prepare for the coming of the president of the United States? Now imagine this, the Lord God himself says, I'm coming to you on the third day, I'll be there. How would you prepare for such an arrival? In our passage this morning, this is exactly What's taking place? The God who had saved Israel from Egypt is declaring that he will come to his people. He will come to Moses and speak to them. And let's turn there, shall we, to Exodus 19. We're shifting to another section which focuses on Sinai, where God comes to his people, reveals himself personally, yet very powerfully, and yet preparation is necessary. 
for the people of God to be in the presence of the Lord. Exodus 19, verses 1 through 25. I would invite you to follow along with me. Verses 1 through 25. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him of the called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, 
And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is God's word. And all God's people said, Amen. History tells us that Julius Caesar penned a letter uh, to the Roman Senate after putting a classic whooping on an enemy. And he used three words, which really translated is three phrases that sum up this classic beating that took place. Told the whole story. It's all that needed to be said. Much more could have been said. But these three words told the whole story and all that was necessary to get the gist of it. Does anybody know those three words? I just get this weird feeling that Alex does. Because he's smiling. Anybody? If you have Ghostbusters, you may remember some funny concoction of this with Bill Murray and all that. Okay, here it is, so that we do not say things we should not in the church. Especially things from Bill Murray. Anyway, it's vene, vide, vice, right? Or vici, right? I'm no Italian. You can tell, right? It means I came, I saw, and I conquered. Simple as that. You look at this moment where God is once again having drawn his people out of Egypt and brought them to the base of this mountain called Sinai through the wilderness to a place called Rephidim where they don't have any water, where God provides miraculously. And in this moment, God intends to speak and reveal himself to his people in a very powerful way, which we're going to see over the next five to six chapters. A very unique moment. And in this moment, he's starting to communicate through his servant, Moses. As you see, this is common, right? Moses goes up, God tells Moses. Moses goes down, Moses tells the people. There's a mediator between God and his people. It's a common theme that, that, that the people of God need a mediator to go between them and God for interaction and for worship. And so Moses goes up, and this is what the Lord says. And what I could see, three simple phrases that give the whole snapshot of what has taken place over the last three months. The Lord called to him, verse 3, out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Statement one. You saw what I did 
the Lord says. Let's be clear about who accomplished your freedom. The Lord says, I did. You saw what I did. I intervened. I was active in your redemption. This is what I did. And you saw it. You see, they were personally involved in it. They were the ones being redeemed. They did not do it themselves, but they were recipients of this gracious act of God. I did it. You saw it. They were witnesses to the work of the Lord in their life. Second phrase was this. How I bore you on eagles' wings. Or translated maybe more clearly for us, how I literally and metaphorically carried you. I picked you up where you were and I carried you here. Like on eagles' wings. High above all that would come against your safety. High above the enemy. I grabbed you and I carried you. Almost like the image of the fireman who goes into the burning building and literally picks up a child and carries that child out of the building. Or like a wounded warrior whose comrade, what? Whose, whose partner it comes up and picks him up and runs him from enemy territory to safety. Right? Or like a mother, Mother's Day, who carries a child who's incapable of getting where that child needs to be. This is what the Lord did. He carried Israel, didn't he? He carried them out. That's the second phrase. The third phrase, which can easily be overlooked, which we should not overlook, is this. How I brought you to myself. Right? I brought you to myself. The Lord has carried Israel and brought Israel to himself. That tells us a lot about the nature of salvation, doesn't it? God does it. He carries us. And he brings us where? To himself. Don't miss that today. The nature of salvation is God taking us from our sin and bringing us to himself. That's the gospel. That's what salvation is all about. Some of you say, oh wait, I just don't want to go to hell. That's a good desire. Keep that one. You don't want to go to hell. It's real and it's horrific. But that is not the ultimate gift of what God has done in saving us to just take us out of hell. I think John Piper's words are ones that stick in my mind as he asks the question, if Jesus were not in heaven, would you want to go there? Right, everybody wants to go to heaven. But let's just for the sake of conversation say that, that Jesus is not in heaven. Do you still want to go there? You see, that's, that wouldn't be heaven at all. That wouldn't be paradise. The absence of God is hell. 
So if you were to go to heaven and have this paradise, but if Jesus is not there, you have not truly experienced what salvation is all about. It is God going to your sinful state and carrying you out of that place and bringing you nowhere else but to himself. That's heaven. That's heaven. That's the statement, the three phrases. How how what? I... You saw what I did to the Egyptians. I bore you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. (laughs) It's like 2 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to heaven? No. Yes. But that's not how the verse ends. That he might bring us to God. That's why Christ died. So understand this, that the greatest, again, as Piper says, the greatest gift of the gospel is God himself. As his book is entitled, God is the gospel. There's nothing better, more brighter, beautiful than God himself. That's what salvation is. Receive that. And you say, that's their story, yes. But I think it's a, for sure, A three-phrase way to explain our salvation, is it not? Do you not look back on your life and see that that's what God did to you? Can you look back on the experiences of previous years and say, Hey, how did I get here? Here's the story. God did something while I was in sin. He carried me out of that sin, and he what? Brought me to himself. Tell me that's not your story. We talk about grace story here all the time. That Part of being a follower of Jesus is sharing your grace story. That's a great frame for telling your story, isn't it? God brought me to himself through Jesus Christ. What an awesome introduction to this. The Lord has carried you and brought you to himself. And then he goes on to say, now, therefore, on the basis of that, and we can't miss it, on the basis of that work, on the basis of the fact that God has already acted and carried us and brought us to himself, based on that foundation, the conclusion we draw, the response that is necessary is right here. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You see, when God saves us, he is also saving us for a life of complete, unwavering obedience to his word and his covenant. That's the appropriate response to a God that saves in that way who intends to reshape our identity as the, as the what? Treasured possession. That the only response that is appropriate is that we are unwaveringly, absolutely committed on the basis of his salvation to obey everything and to be faithful to his covenant. As I've often 
said to my children, I think I mentioned this before, your life is very simple. I take care of absolutely everything. You obey me. Let's watch TV. Like, that's pretty much life. I take care of you. I provide for your needs. I do the things that you're just simply unable to do in your own, on your own. I protect you with God's help, of course. I provide for you. I seek your good and your joy. Right? I use wisdom to, to hedge things and to, to look ahead, and, and, I, and I guide you and I lead you. You have nothing to worry about. But I'm calling on you to obey my voice as I obey the Lord. Right? Simple. Obey me. And what do the people do? And of course, more should be and could be said about this. And maybe just a quick comment about verse 6. That there's this conditional promise that comes with obedience. If you obey me and keep my covenant. If that, what? You will be to me a treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The idea is, is that we engage in covenant relationship with God. What? We will represent him to the world. Uniquely. The people of God represent their God to the world so that if the world were to look at the people of God, they could say, that's what God is like. In our obedience and faithfulness to Him, they look at us as the people of God and they say, there's the Lord. That's what He's like. And so the people, verse 7, do that. Verse 8, all the people answered together and said, and I love that, all the people. This is no individualized commitment, like everyone's just going to do their own thing, you know, vote yay, vote, vote nay, who's in, who's out. This is a collective corporate responsibility for the nation, all the people. And this is a collective corporate responsibility for us as the new covenant people of God, all of us corporately enter into a commitment to obey the Lord and to be faithful to His covenant. We think so individualistically, don't we? And I think we also think uh, kind of in a picking and choosing manner, right? It says, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. Man, I can't tell you how many conversations I have with people and myself, being the sinner that I am, right? Where it's this, well, yeah, you know, I recognize that, and yeah, I submit to that, absolutely, but all oh, that command, is that really for our day? You know, is that really for me? Like, it, there's a picking and choosing of, I'll take that one, I'll take that command, but I'm not so sure about that one. Love the response. It's all inclusive. All the people, all the commands, all the expectations. We'll do it. And I think through this, we're being invited as well. The Lord is inviting you today to a commitment that 
His redemption has inspired. The Lord is inviting you today. He's not forcing your hand. He's inviting you today to a commitment that his redemption has inspired. Since he has saved you, submit to him all thing, in all things. Obedience to his word, faithfulness to his covenant. This is, in some ways, a, a total universal obligation. God expects all of us to obey all of him in response to his gracious and merciful act of redemption. And again, I think we live in a day where we would value options over obligations. Again, back to the picking and choosing. You say, oh man, that's an overstatement. Well, let's take ordering at Starbucks as an example. You ready? Back in the day, you could just go into a coffee shop and say, I want a cup of coffee. That's it. Here is the recorded longest possible order at Starbucks based on options. Are you ready? You guys might want to use the bathroom, come back in between. You ready for this? Imagine someone walking in and saying, the double ristretto vente half soy nonfat decaf organic chocolate brownie iced vanilla double shot gingerbread frappuccino extra hot with foam whipped cream upside down double blended one sweet and low and one neutral sweet and ice is the longest possible order. Could you imagine? You might have to write that one down, maybe text the barista. Where does that come from? One word. Option. It's what our culture values. Picking and choosing options. I think the coming of the Lord calls for our absolute obedience to him. A heart that is postured. Whatever you say, Lord, I'll do it. Is that your heart this morning? Is that your heart this morning? Before God. He's coming. Is your heart ready? Is it postured before the Lord with a willingness, a heart that says, yes, whatever you ask, even if it feels obligatory, even if it doesn't feel right based on my emotions and some of the things that I've had, is your heart being postured to an unconditional obedience unwavering is really what i mean uh, obedience to the lord so verse 9 after hearing the commitment the lord says to moses behold i'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when i speak with you and may also believe you forever there it is the people have committed themselves to me in response to my commitment to save them so therefore i'm coming to you in a thick cloud, they're going to hear. And my intention, my purpose, is that as the people hear me, they will trust you. You see, this whole thing is full circle for Moses. You see, back in chapter 3, God said to Moses, as Moses is saying, wait a minute, I'm not the guy, don't use me. How can I know I'm the guy? You got the wrong dude for the job. And he says, this will be a sign to you, Moses, that you will come back here on this mountain and worship with those people. And so once again, we see that 
that God is confirming his choice of Moses, bringing him all the way back to this mountain where he first engaged Yahweh in the burning bush. Now the whole nation of Israel has come full circle. And so now Moses is being confirmed. This is my chosen mediator right now. They will hear my voice and they will follow you. They will, they will trust you. Ultimately trust me. And so the Lord telling he's coming says this. He says, the Lord said to Moses, verse 10, go to the people. And consecrate them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day. Verse 15, he said to the people, be ready for the third day. You see, I don't know about you, but as I'm hearing this conditional promise, if you will obey my voice, if you will keep my covenant, then you'll be to me a treasured possession. Then you'll be to me a holy nation a kingdom of priests. I don't know about you, but I look back on my life and even consider the last 24 hours, and the reality is this. I have not obeyed the Lord. Have you? Can you look back on your life and just humbly admit that you have not been faithful to him often? And we look at the future of Israel, and even really the last couple months, they're a complete disaster in relationship with God. They are not prepared Although committed in word, and I think sincerely so, they're, they're committed in word, but the reality is this, they are not clean. They're not prepared. They're not ready for the holy God who's incomparably awesome. They're not ready for him. That this God is deserving of a consecrated people, a clean people. That a holy God demands that those in his presence be like he is, be holy as he is holy. Lest what? They die. Or as in repeated phrases, what? Lest the Lord break out against them. The fact that we in our sin are anything but prepared for the living God says that something is required to prepare us. And that's our consecration. Consecrate them. What does that mean? It means to make holy. Or as Doug Stewart points out, to make acceptable to be close to God. In and of ourselves, in our sin, we are simply unacceptable to God. You say, well, that's not really fair in the Sesame Street society. That's not really nice. That doesn't help my self-esteem. Please don't have self-esteem. Don't have that. Base your view of self and all that gives you joy based on the Lord's consecrating of you. His cleaning of you. His washing, not just of your clothes, but of your heart before Him. This is reality. These people cannot handle the presence of an incomparably holy and awesome God. They can't deal with it. They're going to die. And in our sin, neither can we. You know, you think of Eden, where this gracious distance happens. I think you see it even in this text. Don't let them come up the mountain. Don't let them push through. Keep them back. In the face of an incomparably awesome and holy God, distance is required, lest there be death. 
You remember Eden where they're cast out of the garden. What happens? The cherubim guard it. Don't let them eat that tree lest they live in that state forever. They needed to be washed in order to approach their God. Let them wash their garments. It involves cleansing. We're dirty. God is infinitely and perfectly and eternally clean. He's holy. In order to be ready, we must be cleansed of our sin and our unrighteousness. We must be made new. It's an absolute necessity. And I think this as well comes face to face and swims upstream to what I want to speak on very sensitively and very gospel, in a very gospel-centered way. That I think we often approach God casually in worship. Right? That three days, I'm coming. On the first day, clean up. On the second day, clean up. Then I'm going to come. That there is two days of preparatory cleansing before they interact with this God. And I think how often we as the church approach God in worship, approach our relationship with Him with a casualness. Again, not these are things I do, nor is the absence of doing it. It does not show any sense of righteousness. Okay, so... Please hear me. But I think about, should I be sipping a latte during the call to worship? I'm just throwing that question out there. I'm doing self-reflection. Should I be 40 minutes late to church? I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. Where's my heart before God? Have I prayed? Have I sought the Lord this morning? Preparing for corporate worship. I even think about my devotional life. Again, self-reflection. Should I be sitting there with a coffee and my cell phone and my Bible on a couch? Should I respond to that Facebook notification when I'm in Hebrews chapter 6? I don't know about you, but I feel the weight of the holiness and awesomeness of God when I read this text, and his requirement that we would be prepared, that we would be made ready. And it's not just for these people. It's for us, because the Lord is coming again. And guess what? What was his command about his coming? What are we to be concerned about at the coming of Christ? One word, R. Readiness. Readiness. We're to be Ready. Prepared for his coming. Not kind of like, you know, whatever, willy-nilly in our worship, in our, in our approach to God. Please understand this. Just because you show up at church on time, just because, you know, you go 90s like me often and tuck your shirt in and you don't drink coffee, that does not make you righteous before Jesus. None of that does. It does not consecrate you. 
But you're not any more consecrated by being a schlop either as you approach God and not being prepared. It's not cool, right? This is an awesome God. Look at the way in which he comes. Thunder and lightning, a thick cloud, a loud trumpet blast. Often in the scriptures, trumpets signify judgment. Judgment, revelation, and victory. Victory. And how do the people respond with fear? Do we really fear the Lord? You say, well, that just means respect. Friends, fear translated in Hebrew is, guess what? Fear. It's fear. It's not one that is absent of love and affection, but there is a healthy fear in the presence of a God who comes to his people on top of a mountain and it's wrapped in smoke and comes in fire, descending on a mountain like a kiln that is burning. The mountain trembles like an earthquake. The people tremble in fear. The trumpet blasts. And God comes to his people. And it's a life-threatening situation for these people. That if they come any closer, if they, in a moment of intrigue, I want to check this out, creep toward the holiness of God, the Lord will break out against them. This is a God who is incomparably awesome and holy. And he comes to his people. And our casual approach often is rooted in our minimal view of him. Do you see his awesomeness today? More needs to be put in there. Do you see his holiness? I hope so. I hope you do. I hope your fear of God has been heightened based on your heightened view of God. And so we look at a situation like this and we ask the question, who are we to assume that we can approach the Lord who is incomparably awesome and undeniably holy? We do it here every Sunday. Right? We, we come as consecrated people, don't we? We spend time in our closets praying and seeking the Lord. We walk these streets cognizant of the omnipresence of God, that His holiness and His awesomeness is everywhere. On what basis can we do such a thing? The Lord, the coming of the Lord, it calls for our obedience and it requires our consecration. We have to be clean. Absolute necessity. And herein lies the truth of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 6. And such were some of you, Paul says. But you were washed. Let that sink in. 
speaking again of their sin, but such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The obedience of Christ secures our cleansing from all sin. You see, it's not our obedience. It's not our obedience. Because if you look future, the, the people of God do not obey Him. They serve false gods. They run from God, from God. God sends them in exile. He brings them back. They do it again. They are not prepared for the coming of the Lord, as Malachi 3 and 4, the last two chapters of, of the Old Testament, call them for. That even as John the Baptist says, prepare ye the way for the Lord. Be ready. He's coming. They're not ready. They need cleansed. But we see the remedy that Jesus' coming means that we are washed. We are cleansed from all of our sins, those who rest in him and trust in him. That it's his obedience. That the promise of being his treasured possession and his chosen people and a holy nation, that promise comes from his obedience and his faithfulness, that our new identity as the church and the people of God, we can grab onto it and say, yes, it's real because of Christ's faithfulness. Do you see that? That Christ is the remedy to our filthiness. Turn nowhere else, sinner, than to Jesus for cleansing. First John 1 John 1.7 says this, If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Titus 3, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. There it is. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. You see that word? The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus. How about our confidence in worship? Where's it come from? How can we, as sinful, broken, fallen people, how can we draw nigh each week, assuming for a moment that we're acceptable to God? On what basis? Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, so much can be said about the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, because of him, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed 
with pure water. Baptism, friends. Union with Christ. His work. His righteousness. His death is our death. His life is our life. We are washed by faith in that. And Paul, or Peter, I'm sorry, declares that the church indeed is what? Chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christ cleans us, amen? Yes, we read a text appropriately so, like Sinai. We come face to face with our sin, the necessity of being cleaned and washed and redeemed and forgiven of all of our sin before we could ever assume to live the presence of a holy God. Yes, And yet at the same time, I think our joy and our confidence and our treasuring of the fact that what we were unable to do, Christ secured for us. Jesus cleans us. Jesus' commitment is what secures for us this new identity as the treasured people of God. It's all because of Jesus. Trust in that. Christ provides us all that is necessary to prepare us for the coming of the Lord. There's nothing more that needs to be done. Amen? We live in a performance-driven society. Get it done. Hurry up tomorrow. Yesterday, really. What a joy it is to look at the most ultimate needing to be done, be acceptable to God, and that we don't have to secure it. Matter of fact, we can't. But Jesus has done all to provide for us what was necessary to prepare us for the coming of God. His commitment, His cleaning, of our hearts before God. When we rest in that, I think it's so much more understood to be appropriate that we give God what He deserves. Our unwavering allegiance and obedience to every one of his commands, right? His redemption inspires a response. And that's our obedience. Let's pray together. God, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you have done. We are confronted with the power in the presence of an incomparably awesome and holy God. We see 
our sin, and it's real, deserving of wrath. But yet we also rest in the perfect obedience of Christ. That when received by faith, by each and every person, every man, woman, and child that says, I trust in that, I rely in that, that they are cleansed from all unrighteousness and fully and eternally acceptable unto you. Praise you, Jesus, for your all-sufficient work. May we be inspired by the Spirit to obey you with joy. In Christ's name.